The Secret History of the Suffragettes, Episode 8. After 1918, the secrets are out. On the 6th of February 1918, the Representation of the People's Act became law in Britain. For the first time, women could vote in parliamentary elections. On the 23rd of February, Emmeline Pankhurst, leader of the Women's Social and Political Union, which we nowadays know as the Suffragettes, wrote to her members that the act had been, quote, won because the WSPU was blessed with marvellous leadership. Not only was it an astonishingly self-regarding thing to say, since she was a leader, but it was simply not true. In our earlier discussions, we've seen that the suffragettes' campaign for the women's vote had been a costly and often dishonest miscalculation. For all the headlines it created, it had in practice delayed women getting the vote. When it finally came, the vote had been achieved not by anything the suffragettes had done, but through brilliant behind-the-scenes lobbying over a number of years by Millicent Fawcett and the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS. If, like some feminists, that interpretation outrages you, then do go and listen to our reasoning and take a look on our website at the historians we've consulted. They're virtually all women. We don't think it's unfeminist to give the credit to the women who really deserve it. But it does raise an important question. How on earth did the suffragettes persuade pretty much everyone that they had won the vote for women when it simply wasn't true? Well, that's a story that begins after women had won the vote in 1918. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The 1918 Act gave women the vote in British parliamentary elections for the first time, but not all women. It only gave the vote to women who were aged over 30 and who were householders or married to householders or who were graduates or occupiers of property worth over £5 a year. It added 8.4 million women to the electorate. The problem was that at the same time, the Act gave the vote to 5 million more men. There were now 12.5 million of them, so there was a long way to go before women had votes on the same basis as men did. Campaigners for women's suffrage dusted themselves down and got ready to start the fight all over again. Millicent Fawcett would continue to campaign for women's causes until she died in 1929. But in 1918, she was 72, and within a few months, she handed over leadership of the NUWSS to Eleanor Rathbone, an academic and another lifelong campaigner on social issues. Now, Rathbone's family motto was, quotes, what ought to be done can be done. And she was a whirlwind. She campaigned for family allowances to be paid to poor mothers. She campaigned for an end to violence in Ireland. She campaigned for women's rights in India. Back in 1919, when she took over the NUWSS, it had been newly renamed the National Union of Societies for Equal Citizenship, NUSEC. Under Rathbone, it campaigned not only for equal votes, but also for the equal right to work and help for married working-class women. It proclaimed a doctrine of new feminism. It included 
birth control. There was also the Women's Freedom League. It had always been one of the more militant suffrage organisations and it too went on campaigning for equal, civil and legal rights. Meanwhile, some former members of the WSPU, the suffragettes, joined a new organisation, the Six Point Group, which was set up in February 1921 by Lady Rhonda and loosely modelled on the early 19th century Chartists. Who led a six-point campaign for winning the vote back in the 1830s and 40s. All these organisations campaigned, among a vast range of other equality issues, to get the women's voting age down to 21 on equal terms with the men. In June 1921, Lady Astor called together a consultative committee of women's organisations. They were going to try and coordinate all this campaigning. At their first meeting, there were 60 different campaigning organisations. At first, their crusade for equal votes ran into exactly the same problem that the pre-war campaign had. Every year, MPs introduced bills for women's votes, and every year, exactly as before the war, the government of the day simply blocked them. Well, the Labour Party had always been the most consistent supporter of women's votes and committed itself to equal votes straight away in 1918. But the first ever Labour government wasn't elected until January 1924, and then it was only in office for a few months as a minority administration. Well, its months in power were so fraught that it never got close to introducing an equal voting bill. Change finally came from a very unexpected direction. During the second election of 1924, held in October, Stanley Baldwin, the Tory leader, suddenly announced that he was in favour of equal votes for women. Most of his party was astonished, but Baldwin privately hoped that many of the women who would be enfranchised under equal votes would vote Tory. There had, he believed, only been a Labour government because of the millions of working-class men who'd been added to the franchise in 1918. Baldwin now wanted to flood the electorate with women as a way to prevent the shocking spectacle of a Labour government ever happening again. Well, Baldwin's Tories won the election of October 1924. Actually, in circumstances, we must come back to one of these days at the History Cafe. Let's just say that it had to do with a dirty tricks campaign and a fake telegram, the so-called Zinoviev letter, got up, as we now know, by the British Secret Services and the Daily Mail. Anyway, the suffrage societies, of course, now stepped up their campaigns to try and get the Tory leader to honour his election promise. Uh, old rivalries began to reappear. Lady Rumther, at the more militant six-point group, claimed that Eleanor Rathbone's more constitutional national union was just too sleepy to get anything to happen at all. Plus ça change. Yeah, it hadn't been true before and during the war, and it wasn't true now. In 1927 alone, NUSEC held over 200 rallies. And what Lady Rhonda couldn't see was all the furious NUSEC campaigning behind the scenes, exactly as Millicent Fawcett had done before and during the war. Attention increasingly focused on the manoeuvrings within the Tory party. As usual, they were bizarre and arcane, far too convoluted to bother with here. If you want a quick and sensible summary, though, and see the role for yourself, cleverly played by Rathbone and the other suffragists in leading the Tories along, go to Harold Smith's book, British Women's Suffrage Campaign, published in 2007. The important thing is that when the bill finally came to Parliament in March 1928, the only opposition was from a few die-hard Tories. The bill received the royal assent on the 2nd of July. Women were now... 52.7% of the electorate. But I can hear you asking yourself, 
Where in all this story of campaigning, not only for the vote, but for all the other women's causes between 1918 and 1928, where were the Pankhursts and their suffragettes? Well, that's a very good question. Between 1918, when women first got the vote, and 1928, when they got it on equal terms with men, most women's suffrage campaigners went on campaigning hard, not just about votes, but about every kind of discrimination women faced. And they continued long after 1928, because they needed to. The Women's Freedom League, for example, went on campaigning for women's rights until 1961. The Six Point Group would include prominent women campaigners such as Vera Britton and her friend Winifred Holtby. It continued campaigning for sexual equality until 1983. Eleanor Rathbone of the NUSEC became an MP in 1929 and then campaigned against female genital mutilation under British rule in Kenya. This is back in the 1920s and 30s. Back in Britain... Her national union gave birth to the Union of Townswomen's Guilds, which campaigns to provide education and welfare to women. It still exists. Yeah, in fact, my late mother-in-law was for many years the local treasurer and ran a hospital shop. But you'll have noticed one name is loudly and very obviously absent from all of this. Pankhurst. The Pankhursts. In 1925, Lady Rontha invited Emmeline Pankhurst to join her six-point group, which, after all, was largely made up of ex-suffragettes. She even offered to pay Mrs Pankhurst. Uh, but Mrs Pankhurst turned her down. In fact, she didn't just turn her down. In her letter to Lady Rontha on the 30th of November 1925, Emmeline Pankhurst made it clear that she actually opposed extending the vote to any more women. Her reason, she said, was that, quote, full and effective use has not been made of the vote we already have. What did she mean by that? Well, if that doesn't sound very convincing to you, from a woman who's supposed to have given her life to votes for women, then it doesn't sound very convincing to us either. What on earth was going on? You get a clue if you go back to 1918. Two days after the Lords had passed women's votes in 1918. So the campaign in Parliament was still very much going on. Yeah. Emmeline Pankhurst had breakfast with the Prime Minister, Lloyd George. Now, by this time, it was pretty nearly certain that some women would get the vote. So, says Mrs Pankhurst to Lloyd George over breakfast, quotes, Now we must work harder than ever to keep women out of the clutches of the Labour Party. Yeah, what she actually said was out of the clutches of Macdonald and co. And Ramsay Macdonald was the leader of the Labour Party. Now, this is an extraordinarily revealing thing to say perhaps rather overlooked by historians. The Labour Party, after all, was the only party that had wholeheartedly supported women's votes. Uh, but then Mrs Pankhurst's remark shouldn't surprise us, and if you've been with us over the last few discussions on the suffragette issue, it wouldn't surprise you either. Back in 1908, her suffragette WSPU had quietly changed its campaign from votes for women to votes for women who pay taxes. Now, if you look into it, at that time, women who paid taxes would have excluded all but the very, very few, very, very wealthy. Emmeline Pankhurst was at that time living in a smart London hotel, decking herself out in new satins and jewels. 
her daughter, Christabel, shared the leadership of the WSPU from a series of exceedingly expensive Paris apartments from where she corresponded with the Tory leadership. Well, don't just take our word for it. Many of the hard-working northern women who'd started the campaign with them back up in Manchester left in disgust at the London, quotes, silks and satins who'd now taken it over and weren't even campaigning for most women to get the vote. Just the very few very rich. So it makes complete sense that in the years after 1918, Pankhurst would actually oppose extending the women's vote at all. Baldwin was in fact mistaken in his calculation that women would be more conservative. Everyone nowadays thinks that the campaign to extend the vote for women on the same basis as men would enfranchise younger women under 30, the flapper vote. But research both before and during the First World War has shown that enfranchising women on the same basis as men would in fact enfranchise far more women over 30 than under. And these new voters would mostly be poorer women, women who were more likely to vote Labour than Tory. So, of course, the Pankhursts would never have campaigned to win equal votes for women after 1918. They'd inevitably oppose it, whatever Baldwin thought. It's an extraordinary miscalculation by Stanley Baldwin. But the Pankhursts were very far from inactive after 1918. And their work in these years reveals a very great deal about them, which is also information that historians have largely overlooked. Winding up the suffragettes in 1917, Emmeline Pankhurst had founded the Women's Party. Sounds okay. It would campaign, it said, for equal pay and opportunity for women, as well as for reform to marriage and divorce law. So far, it was much like any of the other women's organisations. The Women's Party would also campaign against the trade unions, arguing that bosses should decide workers' pay. Well, given what we've just seen, that's no great surprise. But... The Women's Party also announced that it would campaign to throw anyone out of British public service, out of the civil service, who could not prove that they had, quotes, long British descent. This is 17 years before the Nazis passed their notorious anti-Semitic laws at Nuremberg, which threw anybody who couldn't prove long German descent out of the German civil service. And here are the Pankhursts proposing that evidence of racial purity should be a test of fitness for any job in the British civil service. And it turns out there's a great deal more to this than meets the eye. After some women have first got the vote in 1918, most suffrage campaigners threw themselves energetically into winning the vote for all women on the same basis as men, as well as an enormous range of other feminist causes. But not the Pankhursts. Emmeline Pankhurst, in fact, opposed extending the vote to any more women. Instead, her Women's Party, set up in 1917, campaigned for racial purity in the civil service. Now, that's pretty shocking. But before we try to understand that any further, let's look at what else the Women's Party campaigned for in the election of 1918. Now, this was the first election in which women could vote. But bizarrely, the Women's Party only put up one candidate, Christabel Pankhurst, Emmeline's eldest daughter. She stood for the constituency of Smethwick near Birmingham. It was an odd general election because Lloyd George's government was a coalition of Liberals, Tories and a few Labour. So instead of leading one party into the election, he issued so-called coupons recommending any candidate from any party who would support his coalition. 
which is why it's known as the coupon election. In Smethwick, Lloyd George's coupon went to Christabel Pankhurst. So the Liberal and Tory candidates rather disgruntledly decided they might as well withdraw. Only the Labour candidate continued. Now, in fact, we can get a pretty good idea of what Christabel Pankhurst would have been saying in her election campaign in 1918, because that year she published a book. It was called Industrial Salvation. And it's not a book that historians seem to have noticed very much. In it, Christabel declared that Britain could have a world-beating economy. All it required was to get rid of all foreign immigrants, and then also of the Labour Party and the trade unions. Well, we might have expected all of that. But then, according to Christabel Pankhurst, what you did was... Well, what you did... Um, <laughs> well, what you did... Um, well, you allowed women to buy whatever they wanted. Sorry? <laughs> no, seriously. They could buy whatever they wanted. Christabel Pankhurst wrote in her book, Industrial Salvation, in 1918, that quotes... The working woman... Now note that, the working woman... ..who spends her earnings on <laughs> silk dresses, silk stockings, shapely shoes, fine underwear, fur coats, pretty hats and all the rest of it is a far better social reformer than all the men's socialist or labour organisations rolled into one, end of quote. <laughs> <laughs> According to Christabel Pankhurst, if women were simply allowed to buy whatever they wanted, the proletariat would disappear. And, well, everyone would be comfortably middle class. And Britain would be great again. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> we should try it now. <laughs> you remember that Christabel Pankhurst had spent most of the previous six years in luxurious apartments, not only in Paris, in fact, but also in the fashionable resort of Deauville on the Normandy coast famous that time for horse racing. The constituency of Smethwick, where she was now standing for election, was by contrast a Midlands iron town famous for its heavy industry. There was not the slightest possibility that a single one of its working women could have afforded fine underwear or shapely shoes or silk dresses or silk stockings or a fur coat. Christabel Pankhurst was, however, unable in her book, Industrial Salvation, to explain where the money for this feminine shopping spree would come from. <laughs> she simply proclaimed that everyone should trust, I can't believe this, in, quote, the insatiable feminine desire for consumer goods, end of quote, and that prosperity would then come from high earning and high spending. Mm. Don't be envious of the boss's wife in her silk dress, she told readers. You go and buy one too. Now, all of this reveals not only how extraordinarily out of touch Christabel Pankhurst had become in her Parisian apartments with her fashionable little Pomeranian dog, but a very deep confusion in her politics. It's a confusion that historians have been rather coy about pointing out. The point is this. Redistribution of income, meaning giving more money to the poor so that widespread spending can trigger more production, thus paying for better wages and so setting off a kind of virtuous circle of prosperity, more wages, more buying, more buying, more wages, more wages, more buying, is of course a pretty basic definition of socialism. The very thing that Christabel Pankhurst had spent years and years trying to fight. In fact, in her book, Christabel Pankhurst imagines a utopia in which workers' hovels are swept away and they live in shiny new blocks of apartments with communal kitchens and creches and laundries. 
And the amazing thing is this, that such buildings were indeed built in the 1920s, very soon after Christabel Pankhurst had written her book, Industrial Salvation. They're still there. I filmed in one of them for a documentary. But guess where? They're in Moscow. And they were built by the communists. What Christabel Pankhurst is describing is in fact a very idealised kind of early 20th century socialism. So, was Christabel secretly a socialist? Absolutely not. It was the Conservative Party she'd been in contact with for years before the war. She'd always refused point blank to work with the Labour Party, even though it had given the longest support to women's votes. And of course loudly espoused paying working women high enough wages to buy silk dresses and stockings. What Christabel Pankhurst's 1918 book Industrial Salvation reveals is a level of political illiteracy that makes it very clear why she had led the suffragettes down so many political rabbit holes. So much for marvellous leadership. With hopelessly muddled leadership like this, it's no surprise they'd never made any political headway. And nor did they, you won't be surprised to hear, win the election in Smethwick. Really? The Labour candidate had, you remember, not withdrawn from the election like the Tory and the Liberal. Significantly, he mocked the Pankhurst's claims that their munitions workers had somehow won the war. If you want to know more about that, join one of our earlier discussions. And he also made fun of their nonsense claim that they had somehow won the vote for women. Evidently, many of the voters agreed with him. The Labour man won the seat. Well, Christabel tried again, this time at a Westminster Abbey by-election in June 1919. Uh, this time her slogans included Hang the Kaiser, <laughs> which didn't strike much of a chord in the months after the armistice, and she withdrew before the poll. And with that, the Women's Party was wound up. And no more campaigning for equal pay or equal votes or anything. Christabel devoted much of the rest of her life to being an evangelist, proclaiming the second coming of Christ. She forgot all about women's votes and women's rights. But now, the Pankhurst story grows even more bizarre. Even more? In 1918 and 1919, Mrs Pankhurst's new Women's Party conducted a brief and rather disastrous campaign, pushing, among other things, for racial purity in the British civil service. In 1919, the party folded, while the other franchise campaigners now knuckled down to try and win equality for women in votes and in many other issues, Emmeline Pankhurst left the country. Well, she went first to the United States, where she was hoping to give lectures. One of the things we're rarely told is that Mrs Pankhurst had spent a great deal less of her time before the war in prison than on exceedingly well-paid foreign lecture tours. Now, in 1919, the Americans were in the grip of what has become known as the Red Scare, a wild moral panic that immigrants were arriving with Bolshevik ideas from the Russian Revolution, ready to destroy American society. Mrs Pankhurst may well have thought that it was an ideal time for another of her lecture tours. After all, she'd been on tour in Russia in 1917, the very year of the Bolshevik Revolution. She had plenty to say about the dangers of socialism. But even before the war, the Americans had grown weary of Mrs Pankhurst and the enormous fees she charged for her lecture tours. So before long, she was forced to give up in the USA. She moved north of the border to Canada. It would be her fifth tour there. And an initial series of lectures confirmed that audiences would be more sympathetic than the Americans, especially in the sparsely populated West. So Panker settled down in Victoria on Vancouver Island, which was an extremely expensive resort, still is. 
where people like Rudyard Kipling took their holidays. And there she stayed with three of the four young orphan girls she'd adopted during the war. She didn't, of course, look after them. They were looked after by their nanny, Nurse Pine. I know, in fact, Christabel had taken Betty, who was her favourite from the war orphans, off to live with her. Characteristically, Emmeline Pankhurst didn't rent a modest house for her children and her nanny. She paid for them all to stay in the 100-room St James's Bay Hotel. Well, you don't find much about this Canadian interlude in biographies of Mrs Pankhurst, but historian Sarah Carter has studied it, and what she discovered is very instructive. In 1920, Mrs Pankhurst got a job. She would be a lecturer with the Canadian National Council for Combating Venereal Diseases. Now, with, or almost certainly without, her adopted daughters, she set off on a relentless schedule of lectures across Canada. Well, there are two things we can notice about this. First, one of the enduring stories we're told about Emmeline Pankhurst is that her health had been broken by repeated hunger strikes and that she was, even before the war, fragile, not expected to live very long. Well, not only, as we've seen in our discussions before, is any reliable evidence for these hunger strikes noticeably lacking, but you also discover that Mrs Pankhurst always had the energy for another gruelling, well-paid tour. Since 1914, she'd been to the States, to Russia and around Britain. And now here she was again in Canada. For the fifth time. In the course of just one month in the summer of 1922, for example, she gave lectures in salt coats, in Prince Albert, in Saskatoon, in Swift Current, in Medicine Hat and in eight other towns. Mrs Pankhurst's frailness seems to have been something of a convenient fiction. As we've seen in her case, it wouldn't have been the only one. The second thing to notice is that she was being paid... £100 a lecture. £100? Yeah. Now, to put that in context, back in England in the early 1920s, £100 was about a year's wage for a teacher. Ever since their move to London from Manchester in 1906, both Emmeline and Christopher Pankers had somehow managed to live in extremely luxurious circumstances. Mrs Pankhurst was not interested in campaigning for poor working girls to get the vote in Manchester or Birmingham. She was only interested in the wealthy. So, well, anyway, what was she lecturing about? Apparent to large audiences who were happy to pay through the nose to hear her. Well, Sarah Carter has discovered that Mrs Pankhurst's theme was the supremacy of the British Empire and of British women as guardians of the British race. <laughs> Wasn't she supposed to be lecturing about venereal disease? Ah, yes. But, you see, venereal disease, in Mrs Pankhurst's view, was an affliction of the feeble-minded. <laughs> and especially, therefore, of immigrants. Oh, my God. And above all, of Russians, who were heading for Canada by the <laughs> boatload and had to be kept out at all costs. She also denounced the indigenous peoples uh, and the Chinese. Oh, and the French. Are you following her... her, her no, I thought Christopher lived in Paris. Well, obviously, she thought they all had VD. The way to avoid VD was, therefore, to kick out all these impure foreigners. And then, proclaimed Mrs Pankhurst, you had to sterilise the feeble-minded so that only healthy women of British stock could breed. Now I do feel sick. Sarah Carter shows that Emmeline Pankhurst had been cooking up this toxic, xenophobic brew for years, ever since her days as a registrar of births, marriages and deaths in Manchester in the 1890s. But in Canada, Pankhurst teamed up with Emily Murphy, a vicious Canadian racist who was campaigning not only for forcible sterilisation, but also for the supremacy of the Nordic races, the blonde, blue-eyed Scandinavians, Icelanders and, of course, their Canadian cousins. And if this all sounds familiar to you, 
Well, it is. It's exactly the kind of nonsense, and here we find ourselves mentioning it for the second time in this discussion, that the Nazis would be peddling in the 1920s and 30s. Now, we should put in a word of context here. This kind of philosophy, victimising so-called degenerates and sterilising the feeble so that the race would be purified, went under the pseudoscientific name of eugenics. It was alarmingly popular in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century. As historian Anne Taylor Allen has shown, it also recruited many feminists, both in Britain and in Germany. Marie Stopes, for example, who was, you remember, pioneer of birth control, she was a committed eugenicist as well. She, in fact, disinherited her own son uh, because he married a girl who wore glasses. Hmm. What drew many women campaigners to eugenics was the idea of what they called new motherhood, choosing when to have children and how many. And so discouraging the poor from having large families, which they said they couldn't afford, and which grew up, they said, unhealthy. So Pankhurst's eugenic beliefs were not exactly unusual for her time. But the conclusions she came to were quite different from those of the other women campaigners. Unlike most other feminists, Pankhurst connected her eugenics to a shrill belief in the supremacy of the British Empire. It led her, to put it bluntly, to the same conclusions as Adolf Hitler – Treat your population as a breeding farm. Exclude anyone who came from anywhere else. In fact, as historian Julie Gottlieb has shown, Mrs Pankhurst was not alone in the WSPU in her extreme views. During the 1930s, a number of Mrs Pankhurst's former suffragettes joined the British Union of Fascists, Britain's rather watered-down equivalent of Hitler's Nazi party. Oh, is that the third or the, or the fourth time we've mentioned the suffragettes and the Nazis together today? One woman, Nora Elam, a former hunger striker, was even interned in 1940 because she was considered a danger to the British war effort. Danger to the war effort. Anyway, back in the early 1920s, Mrs Pankhurst was telling her Canadian listeners that, quotes, immigrants of the British race are best for the Dominion's development. The task now committed to the Canadian people is to carry on the traditions of a race, the first and most splendid race ever seen. The British. Well... You can imagine the conversations between Mrs Pankhurst and Emily Murphy as together they rumbled in train after train from town to town, playing solitaire and talking racism. <laughs> Pankhurst earned her £100 a time preaching a doctrine of out-and-out -out racism. Murphy campaigned for forcible sterilisation of the feeble-minded. And it wasn't, we have to say, without effect. Between 1929 and 1972, over 2,800 women were forcibly sterilised in British Columbia and Alberta, where Murphy and Pankhurst had been lecturing. Shocking. Then, in 1924, Mrs Pankhurst's Canadian backers lost their funding. So she left. She went to Bermuda. Bermuda? <laughs> In 1924, having made a fortune lecturing Canadians that they should kick out all foreigners and breed pure British children, Mrs Pankhurst settled down in Bermuda. Far away in Britain, the suffrage campaign continued, pushing for the vote for women on the same basis as men. But Mrs P wasn't interested. She did not, she said when asked, want any more women to get the vote. Well, in 1924, Bermuda was buzzing with hopes of becoming a smart tourist destination. An exclusive club and hotel had opened in 1923, and another large hotel was opening in 1924, designed by the architects of the New York Ritz. 
Mrs Pankhurst's excuse for choosing the island was that she'd been invited to give a lecture by a new suffrage society established just the year before. But after the lecture, she stayed on, spending liberally until, well, within a year, she'd got through much of the vast sum she'd earned in Canada. Well, then, stopping just briefly in Britain, where she apparently somehow got rid of the three girls she'd adopted, she made her way to Joan-les-Pas on the French Riviera, which was rapidly becoming the most fashionable place for the European wealthy to be. And while back in England, the fight for the franchise went on in the heart of the Tory party... Emmeline met up with her daughter Christabel and one of their old suffragette friends, Mabel Tuke. And together, the three of them set up a tea shop. You just couldn't make it up. You'd love to know whether Scott Fitzgerald, who lived in Jean Lepin at the time, having just finished The Great Gatsby, ever popped into the tea shop. But whether he did or not, the shop didn't make money. Emmeline Pankhurst was apparently no longer being taken up by the British well-to-do, as she had been in London before the war. In 1926, her funds finally ran out and she was at last forced to return to Britain. Uh, Now seriously short of money, she found a place to live in Whitechapel, which was then not at all the most fashionable end of London. Her daughter Sylvia, in fact, had once worked among the poor in Whitechapel and had become a communist. Emmeline had therefore thrown her out of the suffragettes in 1913. By 1926, in fact, Sylvia had long moved away and was living in a leafy suburb with her partner, who was an Italian anarchist. In 1928, Emmeline was persuaded to return to politics. Uh, Not to campaign for women's rights or issues, she would stand as a parliamentary candidate in Whitechapel for the Tory party. But in June that year, 1928, months before the election, Emmeline Pankhurst died. The story goes, in fact, that she discovered that her daughter Sylvia was having a baby. After all those lectures on motherhood and protecting the race, the shame of her unmarried daughter Sylvia having a child with an Italian anarchist was, it is said, too much. Well, that's the story that's told. Emmeline Pankhurst was a month short of 70 when she died. For those who still want to believe her health had been broken before the war, average life expectancy for a woman born in 1928, the year she died, was just 62. For a woman born when Mrs Pankhurst was, it had been 41. She left a total of £85. And now the myth-making seriously began. Actually, it began already. Historian Laura Nim Mayhall has shown how former suffragettes had organised themselves in 1926 as the Suffrage Fellowship. They had the explicit intention of creating a history of their movement. Now, the context was the completely understandable fashion at the time in the late 20s for roles of honour. They were being drawn up in schools and workplaces, remembering colleagues and old boys who'd been killed in the war. The Suffrage Fellowship wanted to show that it wasn't just men who suffered to make Britain a better place. Women too. Perfectly laudable aim. But in 1929, the Suffrage Fellowship sent out a questionnaire. It would be, it explained, the basis for its own role of honour of suffragette prisoners. Well, the clue's in the title. The questionnaire asked, when you were... Imprisoned, how many times and for how long? It asked about hunger strikes and forcible feeding. It turned out that the fellowship had money it could loan to former suffragettes, but it would only make a loan on condition that you'd been imprisoned. So whether intentionally or not, the 1929 Suffrage Fellowship Questionnaire and the loan scheme began to create the impression that it was only the women who'd been imprisoned and been forcibly fed who'd campaigned for women's suffrage. The rest sort of didn't count. And once begun, the myth grew and grew. 
Now the Suffrage Fellowship also began collecting a database about other suffragette action. Uh, but it didn't include all suffragette action. The Fellowship only wanted to know about attacks on property. It did not want to know about the many occasions in which suffragette violence had threatened or had actually injured people. Like, for example, the acid attacks, and the bombs on crowded theatres and on trains, or the axes they'd thrown at politicians. All that had become rather awkward and embarrassing to talk about by the late 1920s. So it wasn't. A narrative now began to be constructed that suffragette violence had hurt nobody but themselves. As we've seen in our earlier discussions, that was a very long way from the truth. Emmeline Packers herself was transfigured into an idealised saintly figure. When she died in 1928, the Suffrage Fellowship launched a campaign to put a statue of her in Westminster. Where it didn't raise much interest. Many in the late 1920s were saying quite correctly that the suffragette campaign had delayed women's votes. Westminster civil servants quietly tried to bury the idea of a statue, raising all kinds of objections in the hope it would go away. Maybe they weren't pure-born British. Oh yeah, maybe not. Hmm. But then the Tory Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, suddenly intervened. He announced that he would personally unveil a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst after the forthcoming general election of 1929. Well, yes, of course he would. It suited Mr Baldwin down to the ground very well indeed to make a heroine out of Mrs Pankhurst. Baldwin, you recall, had stuck his neck out to back women's votes, equal votes, running the risk that many of the new poorer women voters would choose Labour. Well, now he badly needed to win those women over to make the point that he, the Tory Prime Minister, had been the one who'd given them the vote. Well, he couldn't very well put up a statue of himself, nor of Millicent Fawcett, who was a lifelong Liberal, nor Eleanor Rathbone, who'd been largely responsible for winning votes on an equal basis in 1928, but was standing at the election as an independent. But Mrs Pankhurst fitted the bill perfectly. After all, she'd been standing as a Tory candidate for Parliament when she died. The statue was intended to make the point that women had been given the vote, not by Mrs Pankhurst, but by Stanley Baldwin and the Tories. Baldwin got his way. The statue was put up right next to Parliament in Victoria Tower Gardens. In fact, it's still there. Not quite in the original position, but very close by. At the unveiling, Baldwin made the most extraordinary speech, in which he portrayed Emmeline Pankhurst as a peace-loving reformer in the good English tradition of gentle, gradual change. So much for suffragette violence, huh? Her story, he said, was one of martyrdom, sacrifice, loss and heroism, all of which were quite naturally buzzwords in the years after the First World War. Baldwin also stressed the heroic, sacrificial work women did in the war. Like, for example, the munitions factories, which, as we discovered, really wasn't the reason that they got the vote. It had, Baldwin explained, led people like him... <clears throat> who'd rather embarrassingly now oppose women's votes, to change their minds. It was, of course, an extremely convenient explanation, even if it was almost entirely, as we've seen in our earlier discussions, untrue. But, of course, the myth suited both the Tories and the old suffragettes in the Suffrage Fellowship. In his speech, Baldwin did, in fact, also point out that Pankhurst had been only one campaigner among many. But, of course, memories of his speech quickly faded. What remained was the figure of Emmeline Pankhurst, standing there fixed in stone and bronze right next to Parliament as the image of women's votes. Laura Nim Mayhor has shown how the Suffrage Fellowship now came to control what the public remembered. In the 1930s, it made itself the go-to organisation for reporters, uh, lazy reporters who wanted a quick bit of background on the suffrage movement. 
I attempted to say that the other women's organisations busy campaigning for women's rights had better things to do. The Suffrage Fellowship became consultants on feature films like Royal Cavalcade, 1935. As Nim Mayhor shown, what the media wanted was a simple, colourful I went to prison story. And of course, the Suffrage Fellowship was very happy to give it to them. So increasingly, the listening, watching public was only told about the violence, uh, not against people, you understand, just property, and the imprisonment. The -the behind-the-scenes committee work that actually got votes for women agreed in Parliament was too dull a story for the papers or the filmmakers. Actually, it still is. It's not a dull story at all, really. (laughs) It's absolutely fascinating. The papers of the Suffrage Fellowship also became the go-to archive for historians. As Nim Mayhall points out, the whole idea that there was some stark division between the ineffectual constitutional suffragists, the ones who worked behind the scenes so boringly, and the triumphant militant suffragettes... Chaining themselves to ratings and being force-fed. ...is partly an invention of this archive. The lines, in reality, had always been much more blurred, as we discuss in our series... But the idea that there was a deep division suited many ex-campaigners, including those who, whatever their misgivings at the time, now found the violence was the only thing the public was interested in. What historian Laura Nimmeho has called perhaps the most pernicious result of the Suffrage Fellowship's myth-making was the transformation of Emmeline and Christopher Pankhurst into radical feminist heroines. As post-war feminism got into its stride in the 1960s, the suffragettes, of course, in their newly minted, cleaned-up, heroic version, perfectly suited the narrative of women's lib. Remember Mary Poppins? Mary Poppins. Mrs Banks appears as a suffragette at the beginning. She's very cleaned-up and fun, and mm. I, I, you know, that's where I learnt my history. The actress wanted to play Mary Poppins, but didn't get the part, so they had to give her a song, and they had to come up with some story for her, so they turned her into a suffragette. They had a historical context. Well, they only knew about the suffragettes. They didn't know about the rest of it. Of course, at that time in the 1960s, new editions of suffragettes' memoirs were beginning to appear, and the idea emerged of some kind of direct descent from chaining yourself to railings to burning your bra. According to Nim Mayhall, this so-called suffragette spirit was, quote, a heady combination of self-sacrificing devotion to the cause and to one's sisters in the movement. But, she added, it was largely the self-conscious creation of a small group of former suffragettes in the 1920s and 1930s. That's the end of her quote. But it became one of the dominant narratives of feminism across the Western world. Well, the result of all this is that outside academic writers who know about the subject, the suffragettes have come to be the only suffrage campaign anybody's ever heard of. They turned up at the opening of the London Olympics, for goodness sake. Make Votes Matter, which is a modern campaign for fair votes and proportional representation, perfectly respectable as, campaign. As adopted the purple, green and white colours of the suffragettes. Oh, the suffragettes, not the green and red of the suffragists who actually got the job done. Sadly, the Fawcett Library at the LSE still uses the purple, green and white colours of the suffragettes. And that's the Fawcett, the Fawcett Library. Library. <laughs> Only very recently has the picture begun to be straightened just a little. In 2018, a statue of Millicent Fawcett was at last put up in Parliament Square. In fact, she's the first and so far the only woman to have a statue there. The names of 55 women and four men are on the plinth, many of them suffragists we've been talking about in our discussions. So let's end with a word in support of the Fawcett Society, not the Fawcett Library, which continues to be an umbrella organisation uniting 29 women's and equality organisations like the Young Women's Trust for Economic Justice, 
the International End Violence Against Women, 50-50 Parliament, that's for equal genders in Parliament, or Women in Prison, and the Southern Black Sisters, and many more. In 2019, the Fawcett Society published an impressive manifesto for the improvement of women's lives. We still need it. Look on our website for details. And when we talk about women's votes, we can all get used to saying suffragists rather than suffragettes. It really is time we all got the record straight. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>